Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Man, that's really good. You guys are you guys are learning. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you all had a uh, a great time with uh, with friends and family and got to eat some uh, uh, some turkey and some uh, dressing or stuffing, whichever it is that that you call it. I'm not sure uh, what if there's even a difference. But uh, I hope you had a had a great time. Got to uh, got to enjoy some time with family and. Um, Recognize, remember all the things that indeed that we have uh, to be thankful for. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads for just a moment in prayer as we prepare uh, to read and, and hear from, from God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, indeed, um, whether we're uh, celebrating a holiday or any other day, we have, we have much to be grateful for. Uh, for you are a, a faithful God, a God who, um, in spite of our, our sin and our sickness and our shame, uh, came to find us and redeem us in Christ. We ask that you would help us as we, um, as we rest in and look to the power of the gospel this morning, both to, uh, to change our hearts and to help us uh, answer the call that Jesus has, has been given to us, giving to us as we've been walking through um, uh, this series, Apocalypse, this, this call to remain faithful in spite of all the craziness in our world. Would you, would you show us grace and help us to be faithful to the end? Um, as we uh, prepare to hear from your word, would you soften our hearts, open our minds, um, make us ready to, uh, to both believe and act upon what your word says. It's in the good name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we have, uh, we have come to the end of our, our series, Apocalypse. Uh, not uh, the end of the world, as, as we said over and over, but this idea of a biblical apocalypse that God is pulling back the veil and, and showing us, giving us a glimpse of the world uh, through, through heaven's eyes. If you've been with us throughout the whole series, we've, we've kind of been tracing a, a big story arc or a big theme in the Bible that runs uh, from Genesis all the way to the end of of, of Revelation. Essentially, it's the, it's the story of the gospel, right? And, and so we've been asking God, right, in light of all the craziness that's going on in our world with the coronavirus and uh, a crazy political season and um, economic troubles, all that's going on, how does, how does God see the world? God, show us how, how you view our current circumstances. And, and God has been faithful as, we, as we've walked through his word, as, as we've walked through kind of the, the revelation of, of who he is to the world in his word. He's, he's shown us what's wrong with the world, human sin, brokenness, fallenness. He's, he's shown us how we got to where we are and, and the solution for it, namely um, the promised seed of Eve that, that we saw back in in Genesis 3.15, this, this promised one who we know to be Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, this, this one who came and he, he died in our place on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, to both uh, repair our broken hearts, to satisfy God's wrath against us, and to restore this world to uh, the pristine beauty and perfection that it was before we broke it. And we, we skipped ahead to uh, the book of Revelation and, and looked at uh, Jesus' words to these uh, seven churches, which ultimately become the church in all generations. His, his words to his people, that how are they to live in light of the brokenness of their world, in light of the, the redemption that they have in the gospel, right? And so uh, over the past few weeks, we've, we've looked at these fantastic visions that God has given John of, of both uh, God's judgment of his people and the ultimate and beautiful reality that awaits all of us if we remain faithful to the end because of the gospel, the reality of heaven, the reality of heaven. So that's kind of uh, where we've, we've been going. And, and throughout this, the, uh, the Scriptures, John, particularly in Revelation, he's been, he's been warning us. He's been warning us that there, are, that there are powerful spiritual forces in the world, forces that desire to tempt us to destruction, to lead us down the same path 
that Eve and Adam walked so many, so many years ago. These, uh, these forces, the, the forces of sin and darkness, they, they tempt us with things like power. We saw these in the, the letters to the seven churches. Power, greed, comfort, security, and the worship of all sorts of idols. There are lots of things in this world, aren't there, that we can worship instead of Jesus. But Jesus has been clear as we've been walking through this series, Apocalypse, that we must only bow in worship to him. No matter how crazy things get, no matter how how difficult our circumstances may be, even if we are forced to suffer and to uh, undergo persecution because of our faith, we are to hold on. And, and, and that was the point of these fantastic visions that, that God gave to John. If, if, if we will share in Christ's sufferings, if we will follow our slain lamb king to the end, God will be faithful to us as he was faithful to him. And, and we are promised this, uh, this uh, life on a renewed creation, a life that, that is forever. But it's, it's only for those who persevere by faith It's only for those who persevere by faith. It's those that Jesus promises to bring more than just a garden paradise that we saw in Genesis, but a a, a garden within an an eternal city, within a renewed world, within a renewed universe, free from sin, perfectly secure, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will rule with and worship God forever. That's, That's the promise that awaits those who conquer, who persevere to the end. Well, this morning, Jesus has, he has one final vision for us. It's actually a part of uh, the vision that, uh, that Jared uh, brought to you guys last week as he, as he looked at, at Revelation uh, 21 with you guys. But we want to we pick up on the end of this, um, end of this vision this morning. And the, the point, again, is very straightforward. It's very simple what Jesus is saying to us this morning. He's saying, hold on. Hold on and remain faithful. So let's, let's look at this final, this final chapter here in Revelation together. And if you would read along with me, um, beginning in verse 1. Revelation 22, verse 1. I'll give you a second. I didn't tell you. Revelation 22, verse 1. Um, that's where we'll begin reading this morning. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We'll stop there in verse 5. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this, uh, the end of this, this final vision here. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to two statements that John makes, that Jesus shows him. Two statements that John makes about what John saw. The first one is this. Take a look at the beginning of verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Now, uh, if you remember from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's rebellion, this is the story of the gospel being rehearsed for us, Adam and Eve's rebellion brought a curse upon all of creation. Nothing remained untouched. It's the curse of sin and death. It's the curse that we all live with to this day. And uh, it is the single problem, the curse of sin and death, it's the single problem for which the entire Bible is seeking a resolution. That's why we've been saying from the beginning that we're, we're tracing this big story arc of the Bible, this big theme. The, the curse of sin and death is the single problem for which the Bible is seeking a resolution. From the the very nanosecond that Adam and Eve partook of the the forbidden fruit and they rebelled against God, sin and death, this curse, began spreading like a virus. It brought shame, 
dishonesty, broken relationships, pain, toil, and countless other terrible realities that we can all testify to in this world to this very day. We can all testify to them. But the worst of all of the terrible realities, the absolute worst of all of them that we saw in the garden, you can, you can see it in Genesis 3, 22 through 23. I'll read it. It should be on the screen there behind me. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Banishment. Banished from God's presence, Adam and Eve were cut off from their source of life. You realize that ultimately that is the reason why Adam and Eve began to die because they were cut off from the the tree of life, this symbol of God's life-giving presence in the garden. And like a virus, sin began, sin and death began to multiply over the face of the earth, multiply among their children and their grandchildren. So we saw in Genesis 4 that just, just a single generation removed from Adam and Eve, we already have murder. Murder in God's formerly perfect world. But here in this vision, in Revelation 22, John sees a world freed from the curse. It's pure like crystal, we read. In the the garden of the new Jerusalem, a river of life flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. The, The tree of life is there. And God's people once again have access to it. It's, it yields fruit every month, and its, its leaves, John sees, are for the, the healing of the nations. This is all imagery of the life-giving and life-sustaining power of God's presence. Sin separated us from God and cursed us to wither and die like a plant cut off from the sun, cut off from the soil or water. But, but for the followers of the Lamb, for the followers of the Lamb, Jesus has borne the curse for them on the cross. He has withered and died in our place. And as John sees, he will one day return us to the life-giving presence of God. No longer will there be anything accursed. That's statement number one. That's the the first part of the great future that awaits us. Statement number two, look at verse four. This is astounding. They will see his face. They will see his face. Now, if you're like me, you're probably tempted to just read over that. Ah, no big deal. We're going to see God's face. But, but don't be like me. Don't, don't just read over that. We, we will see his face. Let me ask you a question. Do you know in the Bible what happens to people who see God's face? Anybody know what happens to people who see God's face? They die. That's exactly right. They die. In, in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. He, he wrestles with God in this really strange story that I'd encourage you to go read sometime. But he never sees God's face. He never sees God face to face in that wrestling match in the wilderness there. And and, uh, God there touches the socket of his hip and it almost kills Jacob. He he never comes face to face with God, yet to be in God's presence almost almost kills him. In Exodus 32.20, Moses actually asked to see God. And God tells him no man has seen God. No man has seen him and actually lived to talk about it. Privileged men and women in the Bible, like uh, Gideon and Hagar, they, they see glimpses of God. They, uh, they catch uh, glimpses of him as he, as he passes by, but they never see God face to face. As the, the second person of the Trinity, right? Many people saw Jesus. They saw Jesus, who is God. But, but we're going into the Christmas season, and as the Christmas hymn reminds us, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. No one has seen God in his fullness and lived to tell about it. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light. But friends, here in this vision that John records for us in Revelation 22, in the New Jerusalem, where the, the curse is no more, where there is no more sin and death, nothing stands between God and His people. There's no more space 
between us, we will see his face. Many of us, we, we've experienced a, a shadow of this kind of longing uh, we have and we will continue to experience it this holiday season. We probably don't even realize it. Right? During Thanksgiving and Christmas, we, we want to be around family, don't we? We, we want to be around our loved ones, people that, that are dear to us. Now, we travel great distances on airplanes, in automobiles, to be with these people that we love, to, to see them, to interact with them. Phone and, and video calls, they, they give us a, a tiny bit of the satisfaction that we desire, but it's nothing like being face-to-face with someone we love or someone who loves us. Right? Friends, this longing that we feel, right? this longing is just an echo. It's a, it's a faint echo of a deeper longing that every human being that ever lives and ever will live has to be in the presence of their creator. It's what we were made for. To be with God. To, to know him. To be known by him. We, we had it once. We saw it in Genesis. We had it once, but we lost it. And one day we'll get it back. One day we'll get it back if we remain faithful. A day is coming when we will be able to look into the eyes of our Creator. Just think about that for a moment. The one who made you, one day is coming, a day is coming and you're going to be able to look into His eyes, to belong to Him once again, to rule and reign with Him forever and ever. We will see His face. That's the, the final part of John's uh, vision here in Revelation. Now, before we move on from it, I, I want you to think with me a moment about all that John has seen, all that, at least that we have covered that John has seen. We haven't covered the whole book of Revelation. He's seen fantastic visions of the, the throne of God. Right? We saw that in the beginning of Revelation. He saw the throne of God and of Jesus. He's seen the defeat of God's enemies and the glorious future that awaits all who persevere into the end. Right? But why? Have you ever thought about that? Why would God choose to show John these things? Why? Why is actually a very important question that we should always ask when we're reading a passage of Scripture. Why is this there? Why is it written a certain way? Why is a, a very important question in biblical interpretation so why would God show these things to John? And ultimately, why would they be written down for, for us? Well, I think in part, this is, this is the reason why I think, and there's probably multiple reasons, but this is at least one of them. I think in part, it's to build anticipation. It's to build anticipation because anticipation drives preparation, which leads to celebration. I got my whole old school Southern Baptist thing going on there with the uns at the end, right? Anticipation drives preparation, which leads to celebration. Let me, let me illustrate what I, what I think I, what, I don't think I know, what I mean this morning. Let me illustrate. In the McKinney family, summer vacation is uh, one of the, the highlights of our year. We, we love our summer vacation. We, we, all look, we look forward to it all year. Uh, we go with my wife's family down to the coast uh, to a little place called Fripp Island. Uh, I, I would recommend it to you, but I don't want everybody in South Carolina becoming my place, right? Uh, Fripp Island is great. It's awesome. We go and we rent a big house for the week with my wife's family. We completely unplug from everyday life. It is spectacular, right? Um, no email, no social media, no phone calls, none of that stuff. I just enjoy time with my family. It's great. Now, ever since Grant was really old enough uh, to, to understand, my, my wife, Julie, she's been putting this calendar up on our refrigerator, right? She's been putting this calendar up on our refrigerator um, at some point during the summer, and we start counting down the days, marking through each box. She, she marks through each box with an X on the calendar until the day that we leave. Grant, Grant loves it. It builds anticipation. And throughout this countdown now, my wife, she's preparing, right? She's, my, my wife is a, is a prepper, not a doomsday prepper, but a, a vacation prepper, right? She's preparing. She, she usually starts by making a list of everything that we could ever need or possibly take. At some point, she'll pull out a suitcase and she'll start gradually putting things in the suitcase, filling it with items. Later on, she'll ask me to go up in the attic and I'll get some beach chairs, a beach tent and stuff like that down. So that when the day comes that it's time to leave, 
my wife's ready. She's ready to rock and roll. She's ready to get on the road. Me, on the other hand, right, I wait until like the morning of, throw some stuff in the bag, get in the car, and usually forget about half of what I intended to take. That's, that's kind of how I roll, right? But for Julie, it's looking forward to our vacation that drives her to preparation, which then frees her to enjoy our trip. I think this is why God inspired John through the power of the Holy Spirit to design revelation the way that he has. God wants us to celebrate and enjoy his presence forever. So he's given John these fantastic visions of heaven to to give us a glimpse, just a, a little taste of the glory and the wonder that awaits each of us if we're ready if we're prepared. By prepared, I mean if we remain faithful. You see, only the conquerors, we've seen this over and over again throughout Revelation, only the conquerors are promised the blessing of life in the new Jerusalem. Only the conquerors are promised that. Only those who resist temptations of power, greed, comfort, will be prepared to enter the new world. We must refuse to worship or swear allegiance to any but Jesus. Jesus is saying to us this morning with these visions, with all of them, do you see what awaits you? What, What glory and wonder and perfection awaits you if you will just hold on? Jesus has been saying this to us throughout this book. Do you see what you're promised if you will be faithful to the end. Faithful preparation leads to celebration and eternal joy. Eternal joy. Jesus is calling us to hold on. And here in these these final verses in Revelation, he's going to show us what that looks like. What does it mean to remain faithful? What does it mean to remain faithful? And to do that, he's given us five appeals to faithfulness. Jesus has given us five appeals to faithfulness. We're going to take them one at a time. They're going to be up here on the screen for for all you note takers. The first one is this. The faithful keep God's word. If you would be faithful until the end and live in the new Jerusalem with God forever, you must keep God's word. Look at verses 6 and 7. John writes, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus says that the words written in this book, that is Revelation specifically, but but we can extend it to the entire Bible. These words, the words on these pages, they are trustworthy and true. If it's written here, friends, you can take it to the bank. It'll never fail you. It will take, you can take it to the bank. Listen to Joshua 21:45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And that's still true to this day. They always come to pass. This is, this is one of the, the several beatitudes, these, uh, these couple of verses here in Revelation. It's one of the several beatitudes or blessings that occur throughout Revelation. We, we saw the first one in the prologue in chapter 1, verse 3. Um, throughout Revelation, the blessing is the same. It's, it's always the same. It's salvation. Salvation. If you want to receive the blessing of salvation, of living forever in the new Jerusalem, you must keep God's word. We don't, we don't like this, this tension that exists between grace and faith, right? We, I mean, we're, we're people who, who proclaim to the rooftops that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, right? So we don't, we don't like this tension between faith and works. But Paul and James, as the argument often goes, Paul and James do not contradict each other. Are we, um, are we justified, that is, made righteous by faith apart from works of the law? Absolutely, 100%. It is by grace through faith that you are saved. But can you have true saving faith this morning without it being expressed, albeit imperfectly, imperfectly in outward obedience to the law? Absolutely not. It's, it's a both and. Are we saved by grace through faith? Yes, but faith without works is dead Instead, we look to Jesus both for forgiveness 
and the strength to obey. The strength to obey. How are you disobeying God's commands today? What, what command of Scripture are you disobeying? Are you consistently disobeying today? Is there some teaching of Jesus, some content of the Bible that you just seem content to ignore? The faithful keep God's Word. The second appeal to faithfulness is this. The faithful worship God alone. The faithful worship God alone. Look at verses 8 through 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, let's be fair to John. Like, we can hardly blame him for bowing in worship after seeing the, uh, the terrifying and awe-inspiring visions that, that we have read about here in, in Revelation. And, and think of it this way. He's in the presence of an angel, right? He's in the presence of an angel. H have you ever seen an angel? I, I have not. I've never seen one, right? But I highly doubt that they look like the little cute chubby kids with wings that you might have in your precious moments Bible at home. They, they don't look like that. I, I tend to believe uh, more of what Sally Lloyd-Jones, how she, Jones, describes them in, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'd encourage parents, if you don't have that for your kids, you should get it. She calls the angels mighty warriors of light. John is in the presence of a warrior of light. And he, he was tempted to bow and worship, and he, he does. And the angel tells him to, to get up because he can only worship. He should only worship God. Idolatry, the worship of, of things other than God, things lesser than God, isn't this the consistent underlying sin for which Jesus rebukes many of the seven churches in the letters in Revelation that we've worked through? We, we saw them in Revelation 1 through 3. And the believers in those churches, they're not all that different from us. That, that became abundantly clear as we work through those passages. Those believers, they, they live in a different time, in a different context, but they're not all that different from us. They lived in a world where the, the emperor, the state, and the culture promised to keep you happy, safe, and wealthy. If along with Jesus, Caesar could also be Lord. Couldn't we say something very similar about us in our own nation, in our own time, and in our own context? But the faithful worship God alone. What, what false God are you worshiping this morning? It, it could be the security of your big bank account, the approval of someone you admire, the, the promotion at work that, that you're waiting on, the, the new gadget that you're convinced will make you feel better about yourself. If you say this morning, well, I don't really know what, what idol that I worship. I don't know if I really do worship an idol. I'm not sure. I think Tim Keller is, is especially helpful here. He, he suggests this to help us identify our idols. He, he asks these questions. One, what do you daydream about? That might be a good place to start when you're identifying your idols. What do you daydream about? What could you lose that would make life not worth living? That's definitely an idol. What fills you with irrational anger, anxiety, despondency, or guilt? That might be an idol. What do you effortlessly spend too much money on? Maybe another idol. You see, friends, the faithful worship God alone. The third appeal to faithfulness is this this morning. The faithful do not dabble with sin. The faithful do not dabble with sin. Look at verses 10 to 12. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 
Now, understanding verses 10 to 12, um, just being perfectly transparent with this one, it's difficult. It's a difficult passage to interpret, to understand. I mean, let the evildoer still do evil and the righteous still do right. Like, what is, what's going on there? Is God, is he giving a command for people to do evil? What, what's going on? Well, to understand, I think, what's going on, we have, to, we have to be aware that there's an allusion to an important Old Testament passage here in Revelation 22. Um, here in these, in these verses, in, in 10 to 12, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 through 10 is being alluded, alluded to. Now, now, we've talked about Daniel as we've walked through Revelation and, and one of the things that we've seen is that Daniel and John, in very different times, right? John, uh, much later than Daniel, they were both given these apocalyptic visions of the end, right? Listen to what, um, uh, listen to what the book of Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So, so Daniel sees this, this incredible vision of the end, similar to what John sees in Revelation. But, but Daniel is told, Daniel, seal it up. Close it, lock it. Can't tell anyone. Can't show it to anybody. The world's not ready yet. The world's not ready yet, Daniel. The time is not yet come. But, but let's keep reading verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound very similar to what we read in verses 10 and 12 of Revelation 22? They're almost identical. They're almost identical. So here's what I think is happening. What Daniel saw God doing in the future. So remember, Daniel's in the Old Testament. God gives Daniel this vision of the end, right? And God tells Daniel, seal it up. This stuff is coming in the future, but it's not time. It's not time to tell the world yet, Daniel. Seal it up. What Daniel saw God doing in the future and was prevented from telling, John sees God fulfilling or bringing to pass. Jesus is declaring that the time has come when, when a time is coming, I should say, when repentance will no longer be possible, when the evil will do evil, when the righteous will do righteousness, and that will be forever for fi- ever fixed. Daniel saw it promised. John, in his vision, is seeing it fulfilled. He's looking forward and seeing the day when it will be sealed, when repentance will no longer be offered. We don't know when this will be. Jesus doesn't tell us in the book of Revelation. He only says that he's coming soon. And therefore, that's that's how I get this this appeal to faithfulness that we must not dabble with sin. On On the one hand this morning, the next act of disobedience could be the one that hardens your heart against God forever. Have you ever thought about that? that the very next act of disobedience could be the one that hardens your heart like Pharaoh against God forever. The the thought you entertain for just one second longer than you should. The the selfish desire you satisfy just one more time. The dangerous relationship that you continue in just one more day might be your tenth plague. It might be your tenth plague. Now, of course, if you were in Christ this morning, you are forever sealed. But it very well could be. There very well could be someone in this room this morning who claims to be in Christ, but who is in fact not. And it could be that, that sin reveals that they are not a part of us. And that this continual dabbling in sin will ultimately seal them away from God forever. Seal them away from God forever. On the other hand... Remember, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know if it'll be today, tomorrow. I may not even be able to finish this sermon before he returns. But when he comes, there will be no longer, no more time for changes of heart. The time to repent and believe the gospel is now. What does Jesus say? He's bringing with him his recompense, his payment for every deed of every human that has ever lived. He's bringing payment for all of those deeds. 
to linger in sin is to gamble with our eternal destinies, to bank on time that we are not promised. Jesus is coming soon. The faithful do not dabble in sin. The fourth appeal to faithfulness is this. The faithful believe the gospel. The faithful believe the gospel. Look at verses 13 through 17. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, we've heard God refer to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, but this is Jesus speaking here. God does so back in Revelation 1.18, but now Jesus takes the title for himself. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He not only sits on God's throne, but he shares God's title. No one shares God's title unless you're God. He declares himself to be the root and descendant of David in verse 16. He's both David's ancestor. I don't know if you caught this when you read it. He's both David's ancestor and his descendant. How does that work unless you're God, right? He's David's creator and the the grandson God promised to David who would sit on the throne of God's people forever as their redeemer. He is also the bright and the morning star. This is uh, the fulfillment of a prophecy in Numbers 24 that, that points to this leader arising out of Jacob who will conquer all of God's enemies. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah that brings the blessing offered in verse 14. For the faithful, for all who will follow him as the slain lamb, you can wash your robes in his blood. You can wash your robes in his blood, the blood of his cross, and be clean. He will make you clean this morning. He will forgive your sins. He will grant you access to the tree of life, to the life-giving presence of God, and entrance into the gates of the eternal city. But if you refuse... If you refuse to accept God's gift of salvation through Jesus to wash your robes in Jesus' blood, you will be barred from the city, barred from the eternal life that God offers, left outside the gates in the place of God's judgment, in the place of the wicked. Friends, if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, verse 17 is your invitation this morning. It's your invitation to believe the gospel John actually, John actually sees in a, in a futuristic way the Holy Spirit and the bride, that is the church, in the future calling out to unbelievers, come, come. If God has opened your ears to hear and your mind to believe the truth about Jesus this morning, come. Come, if your soul is thirsty, they say, Jesus offers the water without price. He offers you water without price. Come, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. You have an invitation this morning to believe the gospel here in the closing words of the Bible. The faithful believe the gospel. Finally, this morning, we have our fifth appeal to faithfulness, and it's this. The faithful do not tamper with God's word. The faithful do not tamper with God's word. Look at verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Church, John's, John's warning is solemn this morning. To tamper with God's word revealed 
to John is to invite great harm upon yourself. But what does it mean to add or to take away? What's that all about? Well, there's likely again another Old Testament allusion here to Deuteronomy chapter 4 where God instructs Israel that they are not to add or take away to any of the laws that he's given them. Revelation, along with Deuteronomy and all of the Bible, is God's spoken word. It carries his divine authority. He needs to say no more, and he said what he's going to say, no less. Think about what we saw in the letters to the seven churches, how the false teachers were adding to the gospel. We don't, we don't add things to God's word. We don't claim that you can worship Jesus and, and the idols of our culture, riches, comfort, security, or pleasure. We don't claim that there are other means of salvation or that something more than faith and repentance is required for salvation. That's what it means to add to the word. On the, the other hand, we do not take away from what God has said. We've all felt this temptation, if we're honest, as we've walked through Revelation together. We've all felt the temptation to take away from God's words. Think of some of the hard realities that we've covered, like God's eternal judgment, His eternal judgment of sinners in hell, or Jesus' exclusive claim on our worship. Jesus is the only God or his position, Jesus' position as the only hope of salvation. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me there's, there's only one means, one way of salvation, and that's Jesus? Isn't there a temptation that we all feel to take away from those really hard, sharp realities, to soften them, to dull their edges? That, that surely God didn't mean it quite that way? We must never... The faithful do not tamper with God's words lest we invite upon ourselves the plagues of this book or, or worst of all, worst of all, prove that we are not truly following the Lamb. Friends, handling God's word is serious business. Serious business. And it has eternal consequences, not just for, for teachers and pastors like Daniel and I or you as missional community leaders, not just for those who lead and teach, but for everyone, for all of us. When we read, when we study and discuss the Bible, we are engaging in very serious business. These are God's words. So we must do so with humility and the utmost respect for what has been given to us. That means that we take God at what He said. We take God at what He said, especially, especially if we don't like it or it makes us uncomfortable, especially then. We take him for what he said. And when we don't understand it, we must seek out help from other mature believers who've been reading the Bible longer than us, or we must consult trustworthy resources. The faithful do not tamper with God's word. Well, John closes Revelation and the Bible with a promise from Jesus that he's coming soon and a plea for his grace. Grace as we wait, as we hold on, as we remain faithful. It's only by that grace that we hold on to the end. This morning, you've, you've noticed the, the tables out with the, the elements of the Lord's Supper. One of the, the conduits through which we experience God's grace to help us hold on until the end is the Lord's Supper. Now, to be clear this morning, it's not that the bread and the juice have any kind of special power in them. They're just bread and juice. Rather, it's what they symbolize that has power. The, the broken body of our Savior and the new covenant in Jesus' blood, it's in those things that we find abundant grace this morning, abundant grace to be faithful to the end. The grace is in the power of the gospel. The, the Lord Jesus himself commands us. He commands us to celebrate this supper until he comes as a reminder of the grace that we have all received if we are in him. This is a, a celebration for God's people this morning. We're going to partake of it together as a church. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you never accepted the invitation of the gospel that we saw here in Revelation 22, we'd like to ask you this morning to please pass on the bread 
and the juice and instead receive Jesus? Trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins and be saved this morning. You're going to see the gospel acted out this morning as we take the bread and the cup. Would you hear and see the gospel this morning and be saved? Be saved. If you will repent of your sins this morning and place your faith in Jesus, He stands ready to forgive you. He stands ready to forgive you and to grant you the same grace that will help you hold on until the very, very end. This morning, I want to invite um, all of those who would like to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. If you are a a follower of Jesus or maybe you're a member of of another like-minded church, I want to invite you to to take part in the supper with us. Um, I'm going to ask you to to serve yourselves. If it would make you more comfortable, feel free to go ahead and put a mask on and make your way to this table. The table's on either side of me. Grab the elements. They are pre-packaged. There's juice and a wafer on top. And then return to your seat, and then we will take the supper together. All right? Go Go ahead and get the elements now. As you're returning to your seat, I'd like to invite you to take a few moments to sit, quiet reflection, meditation. Ask God to reveal to you your sin. Even though we're in Christ this morning, we are not yet perfected. We are not yet ready to enter the presence of God. We come in here with baggage, with sin. I encourage you to take a moment. Maybe you want to pray wherever you are there. Feel free to kneel if that would make you more comfortable. But spend a few moments asking God to reveal your sin, to show you the way that you're not being faithful. Confess that sin to Him. Repent of it. Run to the grace of the gospel. And in a few moments, we'll take the supper together. Give you a moment to open your elements. Oftentimes, as believers, we we think that the gospel is something that we we get once and we move on from. And yet, the consistent teaching of Scripture is is the gospel is um, is the place we remain for our entire lives as followers of Jesus. The, the deep well that we continue to return to for for water for our thirsty souls. It's through the gospel that that we find grace to remain faithful to the very end. That's been the the thing that we've seen throughout this series as we've looked at, at God's Word, as we've asked God to reveal to us how He sees the world, right? He sees all of our our hardship 
and our suffering as a part of His magnificent and beautiful plan to prepare us for the day when we will enter His presence free from sin, free from death, free from the curse, to live with Him forevermore. And all of that this morning was bought by the body and the blood of Jesus, symbolized by the bread and the cup. This this bread is a symbol of His body broken on the cross for our sins, for your sins, if you were in Christ this morning. He was broken so that you might be made whole. This cup is a symbol of the blood, His blood poured out. Blood that satisfies God's wrath. God's just wrath against us, against our sins. And blood that establishes a new relationship between God and man. A relationship not built on rules and laws, but built on faith, on grace, on one who died in our place. Let us eat the bread and drink the cup this morning in remembrance of our great Savior and the great grace that He offers us. Let's eat and drink. you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, it's been been good to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. To be reminded that from Genesis to Revelation, the problem of sin and death the curse that we brought upon all mankind, you have been working to solve and have solved in our blessed Savior Jesus. Father, would you help us to be a people who take advantage of the means of grace that you've given us, the rehearsals of the gospel like we've just done, the the being with believers and encouraging one another the gift of your word. Let us be a people who who feast upon your grace, the grace that you've paid for us, you bought for us in Christ. May we be a people who, who step out into a world that is crazy and filled with all sorts of temptations, things that would lure us away to destruction, a world that's filled even sometimes with suffering and persecution, may we be a people filled with such grace that we might step into that world faithful. Faithful and ready to declare a message of hope to our friends and neighbors. The gospel is for all the nations. That they might all know the goodness of the grace of Christ, would you fill us so much with his grace that our friends and neighbors would see it in us? Help us in these things for the good name of your son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.